0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This episode of the China Power podcast will feature one of five debates we held about China during our 2023 conference this fall. Each debate involves two leading experts taking a different position on one aspect of Chinese power. Happy holidays and thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with new guests in January 2024. This debate is on the proposition that the United States and China are locked in a new Cold War, not a new debate topic, one that actually has been debated quite a bit uh, in DC, um, this including from in uh, Brookings recently, uh, but... Uh, I thought what makes this debate unique would be, is that we have a leading political scientist arguing uh, for one position and a leading historian arguing for another. So we'll see um, the extent to which dif- not only different perspectives on this debate, but different uh, backgrounds in terms of understanding the Cold War, how that might uh, inject a little bit more of um, uh, uh, a little bit more different dimensions into this debate. So I'm not going to uh, unpack this debate topic very much because this is a very well-known debate topic. And I'm going to go directly to the voting, and I will introduce our speakers in the meantime. Again, this is the same uh, same poll as before, same way, same type of poll as before. You can vote via the QR code, or you can vote uh, via the URL, which is pollev.com slash power. We have folks both voting in person here as well as online, so we'll uh, just give a second for that poll to um, finalize. While while we're doing that, let me introduce our two debaters uh, to my left immediately arguing for this proposition that the United States and China are locked in a Cold War is Dr. Dr. Michael Beckley. He is the director of the Asia program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He is also an associate professor of political science at Tufts University and a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Michael is an expert on the balance of power between the US and China and has previously worked at the Department of Defense, the Rand Corporation, and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and continues to advise offices within the US intelligence community as well as the Department of Defense. Arguing against this proposition is Professor Arnie Westad. He is a professor at the Jackson School of Global Affairs at Yale University. He is a uh, prominent Cold War historian uh, with uh, focusing much of his uh, time on, of course, China-Russia relations uh, and uh, the Chinese Communist Party. In addition to teaching at Yale and Harvard, he has also taught at the London School of Economics. He is a fellow of the British Academy and of several other national academies. I also recently learned, uh, Arnie, from your students that you speak six languages, seven languages. On a good day. On a good day. <laughs> Fluent, including Chinese, Russian, among the more difficult languages. But, uh, let's, let me now turn back to the poll to see what we are seeing. So, for this poll, we are seeing about uh, 58, 59% of the respondents agree that the United States and China are locked in a new Cold War, and about 41% uh, disagree. So, it's relatively even compared to some of the other polls we saw earlier today. Um, but thank you again for Michael and Arnie for joining us. And let me turn the floor to Michael, who will first argue for the proposition. Great, thanks so much.
1: That probably helps. Great. Now, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I've been a long time listener of these debates, but a first time debater, so it's really a, a, an honor and a privilege to be here. Um, I'll, I'll just, in the opening statement, I'll just make two points. First, why I think we can call this a cold war. And then second, why I think uh, the two countries are locked in a cold war. I don't really like that phrase locked, but I I do think the two countries basically are, are, it's unlikely they're going to be able to talk their way out of this. So on the first point, why I think it's a cold war, I mean, if you just look in a dictionary about what a cold war is, it'll say something like a conflict of interest waged with all measures short of war. And that seems to me to fit the US-China relationship pretty well. Um, You know, in my mind, it's not it's not a misunderstanding. In fact, I think the problem is that the two countries understand each other very well and they dislike what they see for logical reasons. It's a genuine clash of, of interests. And the sides just, they're not gonna to agree to disagree on this. Instead, they're gonna grind each other down with every weapon short of war, sanctions, uh, espionage, military threats, shows of force. Neither side wants a hot war, but neither side is willing to take the use of force off the table. So we're stuck in this very tense situation. And I want to point out that cold wars are are not just common. I think they're actually the historical norm for how world politics actually works. The only reason we have this visceral reaction to an idea of a cold war is we've just all gotten so used to living in a post-cold war world over the last 30 or so years. But if you look at history, it's littered with cold wars. Uh, You go, you know, Athens and Sparta waged a Cold War when they weren't fighting hot wars against each other. I think you could say the same between uh, Britain and Germany prior to World War I, or the U.S. and Japan prior to World War II. There's also lots of regional Cold Wars, whether it's India and Pakistan just going at each other, or North and South Korea, Greece and Turkey. You have these situations where two countries have just singled each other out for intense security competition. And political scientists have studied this, um, and they found that even though these kind of uh, relationships only make up about 1% of the international relationships in the world. They account for something like 80% of the, the conflict that we see. So it really drives history forward. Um, now, of course, there was the Cold War. And I don't think the U.S.-China rivalry is a, is a carbon copy of the Cold War. Um, but you do have a conflict of interest in two sides that are willing and able to struggle to try to come out on top. So in the U.S.-China case, you know, the, the, the Chinese always talk about win-win outcomes. Um, I gotta be honest, I'm not seeing a lot of win-win um, here. I think most of the major issues are pretty win-lose to me at the end of the day. I mean, something like Taiwan can be governed from Taipei or Beijing. Um, the United States might be okay kicking the can down the road indefinitely, but I don't think the Chinese are, are cool with that. Um, the East China Seas and South China Seas, those can be international waters or parts of them can become essentially Chinese territory. Russia can be propped up or, or ground down. Uh, democracy can be spread or, or curtailed, and if you look at something like um, America's alliances in, in East Asia, you know, for the United States, those were a force for stability. But from a Chinese perspective, it's just hostile encirclement. And I think both governments are essentially correct in their in their calculations um, about those. Um, even even transnational issues have become infused with zero sum dynamics. Uh, I used to ask my students. if if aliens came to earth and they were here to kill us all, would the United States and China band together to fight off the aliens? And I think we basically had a test case of this over the last few years. I mean, you know, instead of banding together to fight COVID, uh, you had the United States and China pointing fingers and hoarding supplies, and China still won't admit that COVID came from um, its shores. So, you know, when the aliens do come, I have no doubt that we're all screwed and that each side will blame the fiasco on each other's Cold War mentality. Um, So there's clearly a clash of interests going on, and I'll I'll actually go one one step further. I actually think the U.S.-China rivalry is a struggle to promote different ways of international life. So the the two rivals hold divergent visions about how the world should work and how governments should relate to their people. So from my perspective, it looks like the CCP wants a world in which supposedly ancient autocratic civilizations really have a free hand to run things within their own sphere of influence, whereas the United States wants to break up those old empires permanently by protecting Weaker nations, whether it's Taiwan or Ukraine, so they're not just gobbled up by revanchist empires, and then integrating those into an open uh, trade order. Um, The CCP touts the benefits of a hierarchical well-ordered society that's governed in perpetuity by wise, strong men. You have the leaders who are like the parents and the people that are like the children and the children need to obey. And that leads to a more harmonious system. Um, you know, Americans are generally averse to those kind of concentrations of power. And I think the American system, in fact, the American creed is almost directed exactly at breaking that kind of concentration of power. up. So I think there are ideological differences that color how each country sees the world with whom and how they're going to partner with other countries. And so all I'm trying to say is the two countries clearly have a conflict of interest. They have beef with each other. And then the second element of, of the Cold War is that they have the will and the capacity right now to coerce the crap out of each other. So they're competing in every single domain of geopolitics. They're beefing up their military forces. They're conducting shows of force. You know, we've got the largest war in Europe going on right now since World War II. But if you go to the Pentagon and you ask them what the pacing threat is, they'll say China, China, China. Um, I think that tells you a lot about the priorities going on here. Uh, they're slapping tariffs on each other, uh, you know, investment restrictions. They're both seeking self-reliance and technological primacy, forming alliances, blocks if you will, against each other. Um, you know, I still don't know what the United States ultimately will call this, this lattice work or the variable geometry. We really need to work on our PR. I'm hoping for the Northeast Asian Treaty Organization just because it would be NIDO as the acronym, but um, there's clearly a U.S. coalition that's being built here. Um, and then on the Chinese side, you, know, you have the no-limits bromance with, with Putin. You have the alliance with North Korea, Cuba, Iran. Um, my, my good friend and colleague, Hal Brands, is actually writing a book uh, right now. He calls this the Eurasian Fortress, and he's showing how all of these countries are increasingly supporting each other and acting more and more like allies. And that, to me, looks very much like a Cold War-style block. Um, finally, you have, I think, increasing political Warfare. And the Chinese will say, you know, the Americans have always done this. They've always tried to give us the John Foster Dulles treatment of peacefully evolving us out of our monopoly on power through NGOs and pesky journalists and human rights activists, plus the CIA, the NSA, etc. Um, but China also is, you know, spending billions of dollars every year on an anti-democratic toolkit with, you know, a massive hacking campaign and overseas police stations and bribes for politicians and online trolls. Like I shut, I don't know if there are comments available on this debate, but I shudder to, to read what's going to be flooding into those comments. Um, so, you know, the bottom line is whether we think it's a cold war. It just looks like the United States and China are acting like it's a cold war and they're throwing themselves into this. The United States talks about a whole of, Government or a whole of society approach. Um, and we need not just a long telegram, but an even longer telegram to win this thing. And actually, it's ironic that Professor Westad, I think, has the best claim to be considered the, the canon of uh of this of this Cold War with his foreign affairs article, The Sources of Chinese Conduct. Um, and obviously the Chinese are, are doing something similar. I look at something like civil-military fusion, and I think it's extremely significant because a key aspect of the post-cold war world that we've been living in is that countries would separate geopolitics from economics, you know, guns and and butter, such that there would never be a question that if you have a trade dispute with another country, that you might actually come to blows in an actual shooting war. And you saw this, you know, with the United States and Japan in the 80s, where yes, they had this fierce commercial rivalry. Yes, there were some hyperbolic books, etc. But I don't think people in the Pentagon were saying, Japan, 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 like we're going to actually fight a war uh, if we don't get through with the Plaza Accords. Whereas China today is literally fusing guns with butter. If you just read Xi Jinping's uh, comprehensive security concept, I mean, everything is a matter of national security at this point. You know, a trade war is not just an economic dispute. It's an assault on China's comprehensive national power and a possible prelude to a shooting war. And so everything, economics, tech, human rights, those are all just adjuncts to geopolitical Struggle. I mean, the Chinese, they're even taking the pandas back from D.C., you know, Mei Xiang, Tian Tian, even, even the baby. I love those pandas, and they're not going to be here after December. So, you know, point number one is if this isn't a Cold War, I honestly don't know what a Cold War is. Um, point number two, and my last point, is just why I think they are locked um, in a Cold War. Um, I, be, I just think it's going to last a long time, probably until one side runs out of gas and has to drastically scale back its ambitions. Um, and there's, there's four reasons why I think it's going to last. Uh, one is that's just what Cold Wars do. So um, we political scientists uh, will, will always create a database. It may not be good, but we have a database. And they've they, they found that on average, these enduring rivalries last for about 50 years um, and really only end when one side loses the ability to compete or if the two sides find some common threat that they will ally against. So the Cold War actually had examples of both of those. You had the US and China pause their rivalry to gang up on the Soviets. Um, and then that conflict only ends when the Soviets uh, sort of uh, sputter into stagnation. So today, there's no common foe that I'm aware of that's going to unite the United States and China. And so I just think that means we have to wait until one side sort of runs out of gas before you're really going to get a sustained diplomatic breakthrough. You might get some brief periods of detente, but again... The historical record, as I read it, suggests that detents generally don't last. They're sort of like ceasefires in the context of a civil war where each side sort of uses it to regroup and reload for the next round of competition. I mean, the United States and the Soviet Union had a detente, but it meant different things to each side. You know, the Americans thought, hey, we've locked in the status quo. And the Soviets thought, we've been recognized as a superpower and the Americans will now respect us, including our right to spread revolution. And events almost immediately revealed those clashing interpretations, the Yom Kippur War, the conflict in Angola, obviously the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, and then these horrifying nuclear crises. Like the more I read about these 80s nuclear crises, the more I can't believe we're all still here. So first of all, Cold Wars have historically lasted a very long time. Uh, the second point I'd make is just I think U.S. China uh, the the conflict of interests is entrenched. Uh, each side's interests are rooted in each country's history and geography and its regime type, and so that means they can't just be traded away in some kind of backroom deal between Jake Sullivan and, and Wang Yi or whatever Chinese diplomat hasn't been disappeared yet. And so China's you know China's interests I think in this case have been ingrained by. Two events, the century of humiliation, where China gets ripped apart by imperialist powers, and then the democratic revolutions in 1989 that toppled communist regimes and almost uh, unseated Chinas. And I think the lesson that the CCP draws from those is we can never let China be bullied or divided again, and that in turn requires that we relentlessly amass Wealth and power. We expand our territorial control, and we rule our country with an iron fist. And you see these kind of rationales in Chinese documents. This idea that as a late economic bloomer, we have to use mercantilist methods to climb up value chains uh, to catch up to uh, the West. We're surrounded by 19 countries, so we have to carve out a broad security perimeter that includes Taiwan, swaths of the East and South China Seas, Austria-sized chunks of of India. Um, you know, and expansion is also a, a political imperative. I think the CCP justifies its autocratic rule in part by basically saying, we're going to make China whole again. We're going to recover lost territories that were unjustifiably ripped away from us. Backing down now would mean surrendering that that mission and making it harder for the CCP to use anti-foreign nationalism as a source of legitimacy. Um, And so I just don't see Xi Jinping being likely to give any of this up. I mean, he explicitly told H.R. McMaster, uh, we won't give up a single inch of the territory left behind by our ancestors. Now, American interests, I think, are less entrenched, but I still think they're too rigid for a quick compromise. I know many Americans would just love to avoid foreign entanglements and some believe that can be accomplished just through retrenchment. But I think uh, at least the foreign policy establishment, um, there's a a sort of a, a belief that the chief lesson of the 20th century is that powerful tyrannies can and should be contained early before they've had a chance to overrun their regions. And that in order to do that, you have to maintain strong alliances in peace time. So, you know, just the basic conventional wisdom. We we didn't stay in Eurasia after World War I. We got World War II. We did stay there after World War II. And we not only won the Cold War, but it ends with David Hasselhoff singing on the Berlin Wall and a piano key necktie as the thing is about to come tumbling down. It's like the most American victory you can possibly um, imagine. So, you know, we can debate whether that narrative is correct. But I think the point is that American policymakers generally believe it. This idea that the existing order serves U.S. interests overall, and so when they see China trying to redraw the map of East Asia, backing Putin, um, they see not just policy disagreements, but really an attack on the order that they believe really undergirds American security. So that's the second reason I think it's going to last. The third is what political scientists call the credible commitment problem, which basically just means it's hard for either side to make concessions without exposing itself to further exploitation. So if China were to, ease off of Taiwan, they would have to worry that the island might start drifting closer towards independence. But if the United States stops arming Taiwan, the military balance may shift in Beijing's favor and make an invasion or a blockade or something more likely. Um, If China abandons its industrial policies and does what, you know, the United States wants it to do, it might cede technological primacy to the United States. But if the United States tolerates Chinese mercantilism, it may hollow out more of the American economy, destroy whatever's left of an open trade order. Uh, you could say the same thing, You know, why is the CCP prop up autocracies? Can it really w- afford to, to withdraw its support from Putin or other autocracies and risk a wave of popular uh, um, uh, revolutions as occurred in 89 and the early 2000s that could inspire liberal activists at home? The United States has similar ideological fears. So the point is just that resolving conflict isn't just about Talking to each other. It's not just about guardrails. It's about how do you forge a durable settlement. And that's just really hard to do because concessions that are big enough to reassure the other side are also likely to give that side a big strategic advantage. And it's really hard for either side to convince the other that they wouldn't just immediately seize on that strategic advantage. Uh, The very last thing I'll say very briefly is just the the last reason I'm pessimistic is just, um, you know, I look at the history of engagement. Between the two countries. And it seems to me, even at the peak of friendly US China ties, there was tremendous strategic distrust and competition bubbling under the surface. So, you know, the United States made overtures to China in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s that I think would be unthinkable today. Uh, You know, fast tracking China's integration into the WTO and transferring weapons to China's military and tech to Chinese firms and quietly encouraging the Taiwanese to maybe think about peaceful reunification and downplaying human rights abuses. Um, But we now know from lots of scholarship, including uh, amazing documents being uh, translated at CSIS and other places, that top Chinese leaders repeatedly interpreted American overtures as often insincere or even threatening. Um, and, and this was really as good as it got. And so I doubt that the more limited kind of concessions that could be made today would really have much more success. And there's many examples. I'll just give one very brief one, and then I'll turn things over to Professor Westad. But, you know, in 1998, which to me is sort of like peak engagement, um, you have Clinton going to, to Beijing um, and to cement the engagement policy. And that obviously included granting China a most favored nation. Trading status without all the human rights standards, you would require a non-market economy. And then to sweeten the deal on Chinese soil, Clinton becomes the first U.S. president to publicly articulate the three no's on Taiwan. So no independence, no two Chinas, no membership in international organizations. But we now know from Chinese documents that a few months later, Jiang Zemin gave this internal speech to basically the CCP foreign policy. Bureaucracy, And he said that Washington's so-called engagement policy has the same aim as a containment policy, to try with ulterior motives to change our country's socialist system. It's a political plot to westernize and divide our country and attempt to overwhelm us and put us down. He later goes on in the speech to say, from now on and for a relatively long period of time, the United States will be our main diplomatic adversary. Um, And when you you just think about it from Beijing's perspective, I I think it's understandable because, yes, Access to American tech and markets is is lovely, but the United States has a big, powerful, scary military, and it's right in China's backyard. It has an army of NGOs and journalists meddling in China's internal fears. And American policymakers repeatedly said the purpose of the engagement policy was to liberalize China, which basically means putting the CCP or at least ending its monopoly um, on power. And so, you know, the CCP doesn't want to self-liquidate. If you look at the curriculum of the party school, I think the top lesson seems to be about how to avoid a Soviet-style collapse, which is blamed on stupid Gorbachev going soft on dissidents at home and going soft on the West um, abroad. So even in the best of times, you add deep distrust. And so I just think we have to ask ourselves, is Xi Jinping softer than Jiang Zemin? Um, would a second Biden or Trump administration be softer on China than Clinton? Um, I think the answer is clearly no, which means that, unfortunately, the United States and China are locked in a new Cold War. It's not the end of the world, but it's not the wonderful globalization, one world, one dream that we've enjoyed for the last 30 years. So, um, have a nice day.
2: Thank you very much. And I look forward to turning it over to President. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Bonnie. Also, thank you for inviting me here. Um, so, the question is about whether the United States and China are locked in a new Cold War. And... Um, I think the real problem we've had with that discussion, and some of this came out in, in Mike's statement, not that I disagree with everything you said, I probably even agree with the majority of it. Um, but the problem is that we end up in an incredible conceptual confusion about what we can learn from history when we identify what is happening before us now as a new Cold War. Because it isn't just any Cold War. I mean, you can take that concept and you can stretch it so that it really becomes any conflict, right? What we are thinking about is the US-Soviet climate. uh That's what everyone has in mind when we are thinking about the parallels that we can draw with the US-China relationship today. And that's what I'm going to be arguing against. I should also say, before getting into the substance on this, at one point where I do disagree with Mike and disagree with a number of the political scientists of different persuasions who have worked on this is that uh, Cold Wars are a normal or habitual part of international systems. When Cold Wars of the kind that we saw in the US-Soviet Cold War, a bipolar Cold War system on a global scale, global here meaning the known world, are actually very rare. And they almost always end in cataclysmic war. Um, There aren't many of them. I mean, for those of you who study Chinese history here, think about the Song and the Liao. I mean, that could be seen in a way as a a lasting Cold War, which which ended, interestingly enough, with the two exhausting themselves. And neither of them taking over the known world. They they were both defeated by by outside forces. Uh, You can think about England and Spain you know, in the in the late 16th, early 17th century. Other than that, uh, there are trends, I think, in, in, in a broad, uh, in a broad um, direction uh, that make international systems either unipolar or multipolar. And I think it's very important to bear that in mind. History doesn't repeat itself automatically based on what the last great international system was. Um, very often it comes out, as we saw after 1945, we saw after 1918 in very different ways from what the immediate past seemed to point in the direction of. I would postulate that that's what we are seeing now. This is not in any way, of course, saying that there isn't a serious conflict between the United States and China, and that there is a conflict that could end in much worse ways than what the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union ended in. And it's important to bear that in mind. But if these kinds of terms are gonna have any meaning for us, particularly in policy-making terms. You know, when we try to figure out what we're gonna do with this problem, then we have to be a little bit clearer, in my view, of what kind of animal we're looking at, rather than saying, well, this is another Cold War, because the US-Soviet conflict ended up being a, a seventh-year um, uh, Cold War. So what are the differences? Now, to me, one big difference is that this conflict, this rivalry between the United States and China is not ideological in the same global sense as the Cold War, and now I'll be using the Cold War shorthand for the US-Soviet Cold War, uh, was during its heyday. I'm not denying that there are different ideas. I think Mike is entirely right when he is saying that on the Chinese side, the preference is towards autocracy. On the US side, it is towards towards democracy. But China is not out to do what the Soviet Union wanted to do, which is to revise the global international system in the direction of a very distinct, specific Marxist-Leninist ideology. In other words, postulating that the world can only be saved long-term if it becomes like the Soviet Union. That's not the Chinese agenda, at least not now. China is a communist dictatorship but a very different communist dictatorship than the Soviet Union was. Uh, It's much more interest-based. It's much more oriented towards nationalism rather than internationalism. Uh, It's oriented towards getting more for China. And it's been pretty good at doing so, and will continue to be pretty good at doing so. Does it want to overturn the global system in terms of how it works, the global markets, the, the international framework that has been set up? I don't think so, at least not at this point. But it wants more for China within it. Second point. China is a part of the global market economy and has been now for almost a generation. It doesn't have the same economic structure as home that the United States has, but then that's not true for Germany or for, for Sweden either. Right? The very different versions of markets, very different versions of, of capitalism. Now, I'm not saying this because I believe in some kind of uh, market-oriented peace. I mean, the idea that if countries trade with each other, or if they interact in terms of investments more um, than what's the case during, during the Cold War, that that would preserve the peace or indeed make interactions more peaceful. In many ways, if we look at historical evidence, it is the opposite. It makes the situation more difficult to handle. And I think this is one of those cases where I'm really the bearer of bad news. Maybe you, you Mike, ended on, ended on a point which could keep people up at night, but this, is, this sort of goes a little bit in the same direction, right? Because the interaction and interactivity, integration that exists now in terms of global markets, does not make the conflict between the United States and China easier to conduct or easier to resolve. The Soviet Union self-isolated. And a lot of people that I meet in this town and, and, and elsewhere, now believe that that's what China is gonna do. No chance. It's not gonna happen, right? Um, in part because the Chinese leadership have learned from the Cold War, how the Soviet Union was defeated in part by its own hands, right? But also because they know where power and influence in today's world lies, and they will compete relentlessly with regard to that. So that's the second difference. And then the third difference, also problematic, is that this rivalry, this conflict, will be centered on one region, Eastern Asia. And it's less likely, at least at the beginning of this uh, competition, to globalize. Now, some people then say, well, didn't the Cold War also start in Europe and then move elsewhere? Uh, And as some of you will know from what I've written, I would, broadly speaking, agree with that. But it globalized pretty fast. You know, a few years afterwards, there was a war in Korea. There were different other kinds of wars going on on a global scale. I don't think that is going to happen in this conflict, at least not to begin with. I don't think the United States and China uh, in a few years' time will fight proxy wars in Ethiopia or in Angola. I mean, that's not how this conflict works. Again, does this make it easier to handle? Not necessarily. It might in terms of some issues that are of significance, that they become a little bit more uh, constrained in terms of what you have to look at. But the big problem with it is of course that the region that United States and China compete over is by far the most important region in terms of the global economy and in terms of future developments. Probably even more significant now than what Europe was in the mid 20th century. So, When I say that this is not a cold war, it's not always good news, right? This is also um, uh, connected to what I touched upon right at the beginning. That so much thinking, I think now, in Washington certainly, but also to some degree in Beijing, I was there in, in early summer, is based on the idea that we are heading in power terms towards a new form of bipolarity. That might happen. I mean, are the United States and China more powerful than everyone else at this point? Yeah, I think that's probably true. But that's not, of course, as Mike will tell you with greater clarity to me than what bipolarity necessarily consists of, right? Um, I think we've seen, I mean, just think about the past couple of weeks, we've seen some of the weaknesses, right, that exist both on the side of the United States and on the side of China in terms of putting their own house in order, in, in terms of being a pole uh, that would really be able to compete with the other pole exclusively. While particularly since the Ukrainian war started, uh, we have seen a number of countries, think India, pulling in directions that are seen as a reflection of their own relatively narrow foreign policy interests without being willing to give in to the idea that the world consists of two poles. I think we will see more of that. Maybe not immediately, but I think the broader trend seems to me to be moving in that direction. Um, so, in the last part of what I'm gonna say, I mean, I think it's important to underline that though we might not agree on what kind of conflict this is, I think it should be easier to agree, at least in a limited way, based on our lessons from the past, on what our, what our aim should be. And there is one big aim, of course, and here, the last Cold War was a, 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 is, a, is a great lesson. The aim is, of course, to prevent great power war. And how do you do that best? Those are the questions that you have to ask yourself, both analytically and, and, and politically. And here, I think it is important, um, And on this I think Mike and I actually do agree on, on a number of issues. Uh, it is important to learn from what went wrong during earlier systems of bipolar uh, conflict. The importance of keeping diplomacy going. Even if you do not believe that negotiations by themselves can end the conflict. Again, I think Mike and I agree on this. Um, The Cold War, the US-Soviet Cold War was not like that. Its most dangerous moments were when the two were entirely isolated from each other and did not have the kinds of, of, of communication lines that could even stave off inadvertent conflict. But then one also has to ask the question, what does the United States want to achieve within this key region, Eastern Asia? And by Eastern Asia, I mean a world from India to Sakhalin. Right? Um, what the United States wants to see is, of course, security for itself and security for its allies uh, within, the, within the region. What does China want to do? That's also very clear to me. It wants to gain predominance in Eastern Asia. That is the Chinese agenda and has been for almost a generation. Now, that, that's not new. I mean, it's something that, that came up as the Cold War came, came to an end. So, how do we handle these two obviously conflicting uh, directions in terms of what the world's two most powerful states want to want to achieve? I think, on the US side, it is indeed essential, and on this, I am no doubt, um, that one prepares strategically and militarily to prevent that China becomes predominant within this vital region. I think that's good for the United States. I think it's good for the global system, and I think. Ultimately, it's also good for China itself. I think while doing so, and more needs to be done in order to get to the point when that is even possible. I had a long discussion up in New Haven with with Bridge Colby yesterday, and this was one of the points where we actually agreed. One can't just proclaim that this is a huge foreign policy problem, a strategic problem, and then not try to deal with it in military and strategic terms. Again, lessons from the Cold War with regard to this. But also, of course, seek limited arrangements where possible. On the global economy, um, it was interesting that, that Bridge and I actually agreed on some of these issues. It's very important not to make China feel that the United States' aim is to prevent China from becoming a richer society at home. Right? Because if we do that, then the idea is that the strategy that we have against China is an all-society strategy that you cannot get out of. Um, On climate change, of course, on disaster prevention, if we can. Um, These are limited fields, but they are important fields. Will we succeed in doing that? I don't know. Should one try to do it? Most certainly, yes, because the alternatives are much, much more dangerous. Finally, and I'll I'll end with this one as we have a little bit of time for for discussion. I said that we should not be seen, that the West should not be seen, the United States should not be seen as attempting to prevent China's rise in economic and, and social terms. I also mean sort of preventing normal trade relations, preventing normal technology interaction. But there is an other side to this issue which I think is important. And that is not having as a main part of one's strategy to seek regime change within China itself. Because this was part of the problem of the US-Soviet Cold War, which really could not end from an American perspective before the Soviet Union ended. China is not gonna end in that way, right? Uh, When China is no longer communist, it's still gonna be around, and my history teaches me that it's gonna look quite a lot like what China does today because it has for a a very, very long time. So accentuating that, which sometimes comes through the emphasis on on ideologies, on ideologies that are necessarily in conflict, uh, peace that cannot be had without ideological change on the other side, might have been counterproductive even in the case of the Soviet Union. Now that point, I agree, is debatable. On the Chinese side, I do not think it's gonna work at all. And I don't think the kind of China that would get through that kind of strategy is gonna necessarily be a better China than the one that we're dealing with today. And I say that as someone who deeply regret the direction that the country that I've been involved with for more than 40 years now have taken uh, since the early, early 2010s towards more autocracy, towards people being afraid of speaking out, um, towards the pressure on, on minorities, etc. But we have to think about how we avoid war and how we conduct a sensible foreign policy. And I think those are the things that we need the conceptual terms to deal with. And in this case, to me, that is not the code rule.
0: Great, thank you. Um, so we, let's, let's go turn to rebuttals first um, from both of you before. Uh, having more of a discussion than opening up to Q&A. Maybe Mike, before, um, or as part of your rebuttal, it might be useful to clarify what is your definition of a Cold War? Because as Arnie said, it seems a bit more expansive and actually seemed to me very similar to an enduring rival. So it would be great if you could uh, clarify if there's any difference in your mind between a Cold War versus the state of just hostile relations between two uh, enduring rivals, or I guess one pair of enduring rivals
1: so i think a cold war just has those two elements you have a clash of vital interests so it's not like a misperception by the two sides they they see each other clearly and second that they're just willing to use every coercive tool in their arsenal short of outright attacking each other i think that's that's basically it and the difference between that and an enduring rivalry is just enduring rivalries also will include periods of hot war it's you know just as like in the database but there's also long periods of cold war and i think you know so Cold wars are often part of enduring rivalries, but enduring rivalries also contain hot war elements that obviously are not part of of Cold War. Um, just, you know, I, I agree with obviously much of what Professor West has said. I would just, I'm just gonna make maybe three points, um, address this idea that the ideological dimension of this current Cold War is not uh, what we saw in the past. The second, this idea that it hasn't globalized in the way that uh, the global Cold War, as some might call it. Um, uh, uh, is taking place. And then finally, what to do about it? You know, should we learn the lesson from the previous war that diplomacy is necessary and guardrails? I generally agree, but I have some caveats um, on that. So on the ideology argument, I mean, I agree, obviously, that China is not hell-bent on, on pushing Marxist revolution around the world. And in part, I just think we're in a different world. I mean, in the 50s and 60s, the world had been shattered by the two worst conflicts in human history, and you also had decolonization. And so you had the opening up of all these new states where they were essentially up for grabs. And so it made total sense that the United States and the Soviet Union wanted to make sure that whatever government eventually comes to power in those new states adopts their their, their scheme. But I do, I do think we cannot downplay the ideological dimension of U.S.-China rivalry too much. I, I think authoritarianism, and specifically Leninism, actually is a real worldview that clashes with liberalism, just the basic belief in this sort of natural hierarchy, both at home and abroad, that the state or party is the vanguard, and it tells the people what to believe, not the other way around. And if you deviate from that, you get burned at the stake. I mean, that in some ways, that is like the oldest ideology in the world. It's as old as, as time itself. And liberalism is a sort of a radical challenge to that. It says, no, the government should be of the people, by the people, for the people. And no, you don't have a divine right. To rule, no, we don't need a vanguard party telling us what to think and what to do. Um, and you know, if, if ideology is is not that big of a deal, I, I don't think the Chinese anyway have really gotten the message. Again, those documents that CSIS et cetera are, are translating really emphasize the need from a Chinese perspective for what ideological unity ideological discipline and rejecting pluralism and what they call historical nihilism, this idea that anything could happen as opposed to the party knows exactly where we're taking us towards this utopia. And I mean, if you just look at what Xi Jinping has saying, I mean, the oft, I I, I want to kind of read part of this quote, because I think it is is telling, just when he's talking about why did the Soviet Communist Party collapse, he says, an important reason is in the ideological domain where competition is fierce. Repudiating Lenin, repudiating Stalin, it means to wreak chaos in Soviet ideology, engage in historical nihilism. It's what caused party organizations to barely function. It robbed the party of its leadership. Um, and as a result, this great party, this the, the Soviet uh, Communist Party, scattered like a flock of frightened beasts, the Soviet Union shattered to pieces. And then he says, This is a lesson from the past. And so he's saying, We have to learn from this, which means emphasize the ideology. Um, and again, you know, not to talk about aliens too much, but if you were an alien and you came to Earth to, to kill everybody and you just looked at the existing geopolitical conflict and you saw on one side the United States and it's the core of, of the U.S. coalition is our liberal democracies. And on the Chinese side, most of that crew are authoritarians. You, you'd probably suspect something is up in the ideological sphere that that's not just a coincidence. And to me, it just makes perfect sense because I actually see foreign policy as basically how countries make the world more amenable to their way of life. And if you're if you're the CCP, you naturally want there to be more autocratic states because they are less likely to sanction you for your human rights practices. Um, and more importantly, your people aren't gonna be looking at them as a great example of a thriving liberal democracy and start thinking, hey, maybe we should have that here within China. And I think the reverse is true for the United States. And to me, I just think both sides actions aren't fully explicable unless you take ideology into account. You know, the, the overseas police stations and the massive uh, propaganda, um, and even something like Hong Kong or, or Taiwan from the CCP's perspective. I mean, why spend so many resources here? Yes, Taiwan's this unsinkable aircraft carrier, but I think it's also just the specter of an alternative Chinese system that really scares the CCP and something they want to snuff out lest it um, undermine their legitimacy. Or for the United States, you know, is Ukraine really a vital interest of the U.S.? Well, maybe if you think about it in the broader context of a liberal order that the United States wants to uphold. So I think ideology matters. Uh, this, the second of the three points I'll make is just, um, you know, is this a global struggle or are we in some sort of diffuse multipolar world? The first thing i point out is um, you don't have to have bipolarity to have a Cold War. So like Britain and Germany had a Cold War prior to World War I, but the world was multipolar at the time. Uh, U.S. and Japan, minor powers have Cold Wars all the time, even though they're obviously not at the global level. But anyway, I, I also don't, I, when people talk about a multipolar world, I honestly, I feel like we exist on different planets. Like the Chinese economy is five times larger than the number three economy, Japan. Uh, the U.S. economy is six times bigger. Than Japan's economy. The Chinese defense budget is four times larger than the number three country. That's Russia. The U.S. defense budget is ten times greater than the number three country. You just make a graph, and it's like the two countries are head and shoulders above uh, everybody else. Um, so I think the only way to, to say that the world is multipolar is to define multipolarity as any situation where anyone beyond those two countries have an independent foreign policy of any kind and aren't just vassals of the two countries by and by that standard the cold war was a multipolar system you had the non-aligned movement you had communist china swinging back and forth between the two cold war superpowers the french uh, opec um you know so i we've never lived in a world where other countries will just do whatever the two are but i think we can still talk about those core blocks that seem to be forming around the United States and China. The last point I'll make: um, I, I largely agree with Professor Westad. You know, diplomacy is, is necessary. It's obviously necessary; should continue. Um, uh, 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 I, I, but I am just: to what end, though? You know, we have to talk, but but what what are the terms that we're talking about? And as far as I can tell. Um, You know, a lot of happy talk is not going to currently bridge the chasm in the terms that the United States and China are seeking. The United States seems to be offering China to get the Japanese, German and French treatment. Like you have to give up your dreams of imperial revanchism and being this great global power. But in return, you know, you get access to Western markets and uh, your hated historical rival, Japan, will remain pacified. Your people will grow rich. But Xi Jinping just doesn't seem... Interested in that. He's not a hedge fund manager. He cares much more about geopolitical power than maximizing his, his GDP growth. And, and the Chinese terms, you know, okay, Taiwan reabsorbed. Uh, the East China Sea and South China Sea, we're going to control swaths of that. Uh, the American military needs to pull back and get mostly out of East Asia. We get to subsidize our, our and pollute as much as we need to for our development. That's our right and we will tolerate no dissent both at home and abroad. And if we have to build re-education centers and herd minorities into them, that's what we're gonna do. I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm not okay with those terms. <laughs> and so some, some the, those that would advocate sacrificing aspects of the existing order, um, I think we should, the United States should be doing the opposite. Yes, talk to the Chinese, but the terms that should be offered are, you have to compromise your super ambitious revisionist aims And if you don't want to do that, then we're just going to accept the fact that the global order is not going to revolve around a tight U.S. partnership. And that's okay. I think this is this, you know, I I love Cold Wars because I just think they're way better than the alternative of a hot war. And I just don't think the kumbaya we're all going to get together and talk our way out of this is is possible at the moment. And so that's ultimately what we have to settle for. So, again, on a happy note, turn it over to the professor.
0: If I could uh, intervene here, I think uh, one of the issues that we're dealing with is we have different definitions between the two young. What is a Cold War? What is not a Cold War? What to, so maybe, um, Arnie, in your, in your statement, we could also, uh, offer. So what, so I think you disagree on how to define Cold War. What would you call what Mike is calling Cold Wars? Like, what, is there another term for that? So at least we can, we can say, uh, I'm not. I'm not saying we should need to choose one term, but at least offer a different term so that we can at least say reference what exactly the two of you are talking about. Thank you.
2: Yes, conflict. I mean, th- th- this is a huge problem, I think, in, t- in 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 conceptual terms with regard to the discussions. And I, I, I'm not just saying this with regard to Mike's position, but I, overall uh, on the on the U.S. side uh, with regard to this that the idea of what constitutes a Cold War becomes so amorphous uh, that it's really hard to use, at least for me, in any meaningful analytical sense. And that's a problem. I mean, it's a problem maybe mainly because I'm an historian who think that historical issues have an enormous significance for how we understand our world today. Right, But I think it should be a problem in a wider sense as well, because if you go as broad as that, it just becomes really, really difficult to figure out how you're gonna get from valuable lessons from last week or from 100 years ago, and over onto uh, policy prescriptions that would fit the specific changes that we've seen taking place um, on a global scale within the last, uh, within the last generation since the, since the Cold War ended. Let me just make two points. Um, And I will make them briefly because I'll be interested in hearing what other people have to say on this as well. So on ideology, I mean, the main difference between us here, Mike, is not so much that we do not think that ideas matter. I mean, in a way, I made a whole career out of arguing that ideas matter and matter enormously for how states understand themselves. Uh, So that's that's not at stake here. What is at stake is how you spread that ideology and how significant that is to your very constitution, your very being as a state, and particularly a challenger state, you know, the anti-systemic state in the sense of, of what the Soviet Union was, or for that matter, what Nazi Germany was. That's what I'm looking for here, and not finding. Enough of, I'm not saying that it doesn't exist, but I don't find enough of it for that to be a constituent part of how I see the international system working now. It was during the Cold War, without any shadow of a doubt, right? Um, does China really uh, really uh, think that it matters two hoots to them? How Nicaragua is ruled, or how Angola is ruled, or for that matter now, how Kosovo is ruled? I don't think so. Uh, what China is trying to do is to get much more out of these countries on the issues that matter for China. And in some countries, that can be through an autocratic system. And in other countries, um, a messy democratic system might be much more manipulable than, than, than what a strong autocracy would be. They don't look for that because they don't have a prescription on that issue. Now, some people would then say, well, you're saying this now, but what about 50 years hence, when China really has become very predominant, won't it then try to spread its ideology? Isn't this just a matter for now? And my answer to that is always, I can't tell. I mean, I'm an historian, not a prophet. I, I, I cannot imagine what would happen to get to that point, the way China is operating at the moment, but could it happen for sure? What matters is that it doesn't happen now, I think Mike and I agree almost fully on how important ideology is to the CCP at home. That's the raison d'etre. That's why they are in charge of China. Um, And how fearful they are that they can be overthrown on ideological grounds at home. But that's not, and again, history is right with examples like that. Having a strong ideology at home, think Sparta, doesn't necessarily mean that you think you need to export it everywhere else. Um, cause some people would ask that question about the United States. I mean, which we haven't been able to discuss here so far. We, we could perhaps in the Q and A. So that's the first one. Second point about multipolarity. So this is where my problem is not so much with what Mike has been saying now. My problem is more with the realist approach to concepts of polarity overall. Um, they are too concentrated on variables of power that are exceedingly narrow in terms of how uh, today's global internationalized society uh, actually work. And I think that's what we are observing at the moment, that you can have a lot of hard power shown through through, through my statistics, and you still wouldn't be able to get India to do what you want India to do with regard to Ukraine, or you couldn't get South Africa to do what you want to do with regard to China, right? The reason for that is that the world has changed in terms of how power definitions actually work, right? Um, But it also has something to do with global prestige. I mean, during the Cold War, in two different worlds, the United States and the Soviet Union had immense prestige in terms of what they could do to the world. They envisaged the future in ideological terms and set the world in that direction, their adherents in other countries believed. Does the United States and China work in that respect globally today? I doubt it. Or at least I see very little of it when I I visit countries outside of those two countries themselves.
0: Great. Um, So I'm going to actually push our two very talented scholars to uh, try to not come to the same definition of Cold War, but at least clarify more exactly your different different definitions. So maybe um, I think... I think Mike, I, I think I understand your definition a little bit more because it's relatively expansive and it covers a bit. But I think what I wanna press Arnie is what would you call what Mike calls a Cold War? So for example, Mike gave examples of when those periods of Cold War are, uh, I think Mike, you gave one example of, one second, let me go back. I think you gave a couple examples of um, Britain and Germany before World War I. Right. what would and then I, of course Mike also calls the current period a cold War so what would you call the current period I think part of the issue that we're having is we don't have another conceptual term right we have hot war we have peace what is the what what, what would you characterize are there terms from history or political science literature that you could use to characterize what we have here that's not a cold that's not a cold war
2: so should I go first on that one Mike is that okay yeah. I know, mm-hmm. because that makes it a bit fairer I, I think so I, I, I was not just quipping when I, when I said conflict. You know, I mean, I, I do think that if you have a concept of Cold War that goes as far as saying that Britain and Germany prior to the outbreak of the First World War were in a Cold War with each other, it's very hard for me to see which conflicts are not Cold War. So then Germany and France would be in a Cold War with each other as well. Um, Austria-Hungary will be in a Cold War with an enormous number of uh, their neighbors. Uh, to me, the concept loses its use in, in analytical terms if one stretches it that. This is, I mean, these conflicts are normal state behavior. Well, I don't have to tell a realist that states rival. That's what they do, right? That's, that's what they are there for. But not all of these rivalries are Cold War, uh, are Cold Wars. Uh, for me to, to see something as a Cold War, and I think this is where we differ. It has to be enduring, so it has to last for a certain period of time within a relatively stable international system. It can't lead to great power war, sort of in the middle of it, because then it's obviously not a cold war, it's a, it is a hot war. Um, and it has to have some elements in it that the two poles, the two uh, countries, the two states that are carrying out the Cold War against each other, center on each other uh, to a higher extent than they center on the rest of the the international system as a whole. Um, I'm not saying, by the way, and I think that's important, that bipolarity is a necessary component of all Cold Wars. But if you look at it historically, it's pretty predominant. That's one of the curious things about this. So that's what I would say.
0: It seems, Arnie, that you're actually creating a ladder in which rivalry is is below Cold War. (laughs) Um, But it seems, uh, Mike, what you're defining is you're defining rivalry as a state of the the relationship between two countries. And rivalry, as you said earlier, had both periods of Cold War and hot war. So you're defining, you're using different terms differently. So That's why I think we're a little bit talking past each other.
2: Could I just say (laughs) on that, that, I, I mean, to me, Cold War is a very specific kind of conflict or rivalry. I mean, if that makes it a little bit easier to understand, of which there are many different kinds, right? Many different types of, of, of rivalry and conflict, but the natural state of relationship between uh, great powers is is rivalry and conflict.
0: And just to be clear, if we were, for example, to use the other Cold War examples that might give, would mm-hmm. you would you say that what we are in now with the United uh, between the United States and China is comparable to? Um, prior to the World War I period, or some of the other examples.
2: And and as you know, Bonnie, I I have written about that quite recently. I mean, I I see a world coming into being, or it is a gradual process, that reminds me much more of the world prior to the First World War than it does of the US-Soviet Cold War at any stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you really need something to keep you up at night, that's, that's, (laughs) that's, that's probably the definition that would do it. So
0: the two, you actually agree a lot more. Thank I, you. Is a great I,
2: I think we agree on the basic definition. I just
1: think that the United States and China meet that, that definition. I mean, I just see it. It's not just a conflict. It's a protracted, zero-sum rivalry that spans all spectrums of, of statecraft. So it's not just a one-off, like your ship accidentally bumped into my ship, and now we're going to have a spat on it. It's not just focused on a particular domain, so we have an economic... Competition, but we don't really compete militarily. It's it's across the board, and then it's also sustained. So um, you consider each other your chief long term rival. It's your pacing threat. So, for example, the United States obviously does not consider Russia anything other than an adversary right now. But the Cold War is between the United States and China because both of those countries view each other as the ultimate long run. It's like the final boss in the the video game. It's like like the one that you're keeping your eye on, even if you're not actively waging a conflict, um, a hot war against them at any given time. I also think these things just then, because they're protracted, they feed on themselves. So you get a history of bad blood. You get a sort of Hatfield and McCoy dynamic going. And that also just makes this distinct from just like, if you imagine a bunch of billiard balls, you know, uh, bumping into each other, you know, this is a realist analogy, you know, some, they're going to have conflicts when they bump into each other, but Oftentimes you get these two that just seem to always want to ram into each other, and I think that's what separates this Cold War dynamic from just the kind of uh, -of run-of-the-mill conflicts that you'd observe among many other countries.
0: And and Mike, I wanted to also draw a point that you made in passing, but I know is quite critical in your Foreign Affairs article, which is that I believe you said earlier that Cold Wars are stable. Right, and you you tend to prefer them compared to other types of wars. Not that, Mike, um, you prefer cold wars in general, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I feel about it the same way I feel about getting old, which is it stinks, but <laughs> it's better than the alternative, you know. So it's like uh, we just got to go with it. Um, no, I mean, I think uh, they're, they're certainly not stable. In fact, the vast majority of these, almost all of them, end in a catastrophic mm-hmm. hot war. And so that's why when we look back on the Cold War, it tends to be in the pejorative, like, yeah. oh, we got this Cold War mentality. I actually think we should be giving some credit to people in the Cold War. Yes, many mistakes were made, killed millions and millions of people, but there was no hot war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And it, I mean, if you'd asked anyone in, say, July 1950, or um, or pretty much any time in the 20th century, in, in 1983, you know, in November 1983, do you think this thing's going to end peacefully? And not just peacefully, but that life expectancy, like the world will be getting steadily better throughout this conflict, even as the two superpowers are competing, that life expectancy will go up in general around the world. Um, um, you know, all, all the metrics that Steve Pinker and others talk about, about how the world is so wonderful, that all progresses even under the context of a Cold War. And so I think we need to be giving credit for the two sides, which somehow figured out a way to avoid coming to blows and on the American side, to not completely disfigure their domestic system, because some people say, yeah, the only way you're going to do this is by turning into a garrison state. You've got to ramp up defense spending. We've all got to start. Mar- we got to take a page from the Soviet book. The United States didn't do that. I, to me, it's a miracle, you know, that this has occurred. And so, again, you know, I, I think we should study the positive, the dues, which I think Professor Westow has actually written about
2: in service. Could I just say, I, this is something I'm, I totally agree with. I mean, I, I, I do think that part of the problem with how the Cold War analogy, simile, is being used, used today is that it doesn't take into consideration that built in at least to the latter stages of that conflict were openings that prevented the kind of absolute disaster that a nuclear war would have been. Uh, and I think that's important to learn from today, but we learn best from that when we understand both the similarities and there are similarities, but also the differences from that. Because it might just be that some of those differences will make that kind of outcome, both in the short and in the longer run, harder to achieve with the kind of system that we have today than what we saw in the 1970s and 1980s. Okay, Great.
0: Um, I want to open this up to Q&A from the audience. Um, let's go with uh, I think I saw three hands to the with, So let's go with three from the from in person and then we'll go online. So Lonnie, please.
3: So I'd like to um, pull the string a bit more on this question of, is this an ideological conflict? Um, As Professor Westad said, the Chinese don't seem to be very evangelical about spreading their system. They don't necessarily trust anybody who is a democracy, but they don't oppose people because they are democracies. And I think they could get along pretty well with South Korea if South Korea changed a few of its policies and regardless of what its political system is. Similarly, we claim to be opposed to authoritarian systems, except the ones that we like. And there are a number of authoritarian systems that we're quite friendly with and don't spend much time complaining about. So I, I, despite the effort to portray this as an ideological battle, battle between you know, uh, democracy and authoritarianism, I just don't see it any real substance to that assertion. Um, so could you
1: justify I, 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 your the question. I was, I was gonna go with you all the way up until the very end where you said, I don't see any substance behind that. I, I totally agree that it's not on par with what we saw in the Cold War, where you had just like, we're gonna try to promote a completely alternative way of life abroad. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, like from, from China's perspective, um, you know, they, they have to sit and watch as like the number of democracies in the world doubled, you know, between 1988 and 1998. And I agree that China is not necessarily, expo- doesn't care if other countries fully adopt Xi Jinping thought wholesale. But I do think they found it very alarming that there you had these waves of democratization. And this is actually written about in Chinese documents. I mean, Mary Cerati, others have published studies where they've gotten their hands on these documents where they fear contagion. You know, they fear the demonstration effect and they know what political scientists have proved empirically, which is that, Autocracies tend to fall in waves as popular revolution in one country inspires it. And this is why we talk about color revolutions. This is why Xi Jinping, when he came to the White House, was very freaked out about color revolutions and talking about it behind closed doors with American officials and he's given internal speeches so I, I agree that it's not this sort of evangelical. we just want people to look and, and act like like we do. but I do think that it's uh, for a regime for, it's like the the interest of regime security then impels the Chinese Communist Party to export or prop up autocrats of all shapes and sizes. I would also add that I think this digital authoritarian model um, is a coherent model and it's extremely popular around the world and in in some ways poses a more insidious sort of threat to the spread of liberalism around the world because it just makes dictatorship much more effective and efficient than it ever is. I mean, you don't need to send death squads around every single day. You can just, you know, monitor people with surveillance cameras and speech and facial recognition technology. You can send subliminal messages through social media instead of stodgy state-sponsored propaganda. And so, yes, it's not the like overarching mass ideological conflict, but there's that's why I can't go all the way with you there, Lonnie, because I still I still think there is a clear ideological part of this, and in some ways it's more insidious
2: than what we saw in the Cold War. Just very briefly on this. So It's quite interesting to see what has happened even in the openly published uh, Chinese discussions on some of these issues of late. Um, This is relatively new, maybe a year, 18 months old, um, where you find quite a number of people who are arguing that messy democracies abroad are much better for the spreading of Chinese influence, particularly economic influence, than autocracies that are willing and able to strike back or cancel the debts unilaterally or doing all the kinds of stuff that autocratic states can do eis- more easily than uh, more pluralist or, or, or democratic mm-hmm. states. Um, I'm actually quite fearful of this. I mean, I, I, I see this as part of the direction, so if you look at politics in this country and Western Europe and elsewhere, but maybe particularly Africa, Southeast Asia, um, where it is not difficult if you are a Chinese policymaker who thinks about these things strategically, particularly as a generation down the road, to think that that could actually be the case. So this is part of what I've been interested in, in sort of thinking about how we operationalize our knowledge of distinct distinctions and specificities with regard to how the Chinese system operates, and, and not to assume that it's similar to the kinds of conflicts that we've seen in the past.
0: Okay, let's collect two questions um, uh, over over there. And then, uh, oh, sorry, I'm trying to get folks who haven't asked a question today first. So, all right, and then one over there. Please, go ahead. Um, So, first of
4: all, thank you so much for taking the time to lead this debate. And um, Dr. Rastad, I wanted to ask you specifically, you mentioned how it's important not to make China feel that its economic growth is being stifled. So how can this be balanced with US interests? Because we have seen examples of the CCP using coercive economic policy, and also in some specific industries, such as semiconductors and then leading to Huawei, that can also be specifically against our security interests. So how can we, you know, deal with issues that are very gray area because, Huawei claims to be a completely private company, but we have found a lot of connection between them and the CCP. The Chinese government is passing data laws that make any sort of telecommunication companies be beholden to disclosing data. So how do we allow their growth globally, which we have not, and obviously this results in China feeling like its economic growth is being stifled, while also still keeping our interests in security aligned?
0: Just more questions. Okay.
5: Uh, thank you. My name is Ken Abe from, uh, Maribani Corporation, Japanese private company. So, uh, I just want to add, uh, some terminology question. Uh, so obviously we are hearing the both, uh, both U.S. and China government officers said, uh, they don't seek, uh, Cold War and they don't, uh, they want to seek, uh, coexistence. So, but obviously you don't buy you don't buy this argument, but so I want to ask. So, uh, is there any possibility to seek the, seek, uh, coexistence, coexistence despite of the, uh, Cold War, uh, relationship? And, uh, uh one more question is, the, um, so do you think that China is, the, uh, uh, ex- existential threat for the U.S.?
0: Okay, great. I think your question um, was uh, more directed at Mike, right? Okay, so please, Ar- Arnie and Mike, whoever wants to go.
2: You want to start on the, uh, the Okay, yeah, so I, th- I think we could actually do, do it that way and, and split this up. So the first question is a really good question, and it's a very hard one to answer. But if you use historical precedent on this, I mean, not just on the U.S. side, but going back to the period before the First World War, um, the best answer, not a fully sort of fulfilling answer, Still, an important answer is by using common sense. Right? The COCOM regime, so the export uh, control regimes, there were several, with regard to the Soviet Union, were not perfect during the Cold War, but they worked pretty well, right? Uh, we can't repeat that with regard to China because China is integrated in a global economy in a way that the Soviet Union never was. But it does teach us some things about how we can distinguish between keeping normal economic interaction going and protecting what is important for our own national security. Right? Um, so I do think it is possible to come up with a policy where we are not seen by common Chinese, ordinary Chinese, as conducting a full-scale war against their economic future. And I think it's, it's vital that we are not seen as that. Whatever we think about the need to prepare for a possible military conflict with China, we do not want that. We do not want the Japan prior to the Second World War. We do not want the Germany prior to 1914, where these were widespread ideas in the population at large. Right? And the only way we can avoid that is, is to talk less about decoupling, which I think is a, is a term, I mean, has the same definitory problems as Cold War, I think with regard to this, uh, and more about you know, how we are going to do this. I mean, how we are going to allow China to develop its own economy, as long as it does so in ways that are not aggressive towards us or towards our, uh, our, our, our allies and friends while making sure in some areas, um, quite a number of areas, much more than what was the case during the Cold War, that we protect our own national security and national security interests and, 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 and national security looking forward in terms of technologies. I mean, this is not just about, as you probably know, not just about the technologies of today, it's about the technologies of the future. And that is what is going to matter on on this. I'm not saying that this is easy, but I think it is uh, the direction that we have to move in, because the two extremes yeah, are not going to serve anyone's purpose. Uh, so
1: yeah, I, you know, China often says it doesn't want a cold war. I think what what my interpretation of what Chinese leaders mean is they don't want the sort of orderly cold war that will naturally lead to the same conclusion that the cold war did, because They're like, Oh, so we're going to have a cold war. So I guess you United States, I guess you'll play the role of the United States. So does that mean we're going to play the role of the Soviet Union? We don't want to play the role of the Soviet Union. And so when, when Americans talk about healthy competition, we need to have a healthy competition where we both know it's never going to get out of hand and we can all just compete. Like we're going to the Olympics or something. They say, no, you know what? That's not to our advantage. You know, I, I think it just makes sense. If you're the weaker side, and you're going to agree no shots below the belt. I mean, my dad actually used to tell me when I was a kid, like uh, when you're a little guy, you need a little advantage, you know? And so you need to find ways by hook or by crook and maybe have the threat of overwhelming force as a, as a, a brinksmanship strategy. Um, and so regardless of what the Chinese are saying, I, I just still think it's clear that China is, is participating in a cold war. And I, I actually agree with, um, folks like, um, uh, Steve Kotkin, who, who argues that the cold war for China never really ended in some ways. Like I, I see it as China, you know, we, we temporarily paused the rivalry with the Americans to vote the Soviets off the island. But now that that's taken care of, now it's open season again. I mean, we always knew this day was coming. You know, the Chinese used to talk about this 20 year period of opportunity to kind of hide and bide. And they were actually very prescient because right at the end of that 20 year opportunity happened to be the Trump administration and like this heightening of U.S.-China tensions. And you just see it's like all the, it's still the Chinese Communist Party still got eyes on, on Taiwan, still an ally of North Korea. Um, and, and now that I see China pushing decoupling you know, from the United States um, and the West through its dual circulation policy and building up this military fortress in, in East Asia, regardless of what uh, Chinese diplomats say, it just seems very clear to me that they're participating in what I'd call a Cold War.
0: Let's go to questions from our online audience.
5: Okay, Uh, we have one question from Paul here of the Chicago Council on Global Global Affairs, which is a a bit of a meta question asking, basically, what's the significance of this argument? Um, You know, do people who side one way or the other
1: on this question have different policy agendas? So will it actually change the way that we set policies,
2: whether we think this way or not? Yeah, I I think it does, to some extent. As I said in... in, uh in my remarks at the beginning. Uh, I do think it matters. Uh, It matters enormously with regard to clarity, which is something that you shall not expect that you can achieve, but always should seek. Uh, It matters enormously, I think, with regard to how you define what is possible and what is less possible, I mean, in in, in today's situation. Uh, It also probably defines, at least to me, some of the issues of what kind of strategic military posture that you should develop. right? Um, Because if we do define this as a Cold War, like the Cold Wars that I've been drawing on for for my scholarship, then that calls calls for a somewhat different uh, military posture uh, than if this is an intense case of rivalry between states. Not dissimilar to what we have what we have seen in the past, but not going in the direction of the all consuming cold war uh, pattern in a, certainly in a bipolar sense that we have we've seen before. so these things matter in in, in those respects. but I have a lot of respect for people like Michael saying, you know in reality, the way I understand you we have to prepare for all eventualities. I mean we regard to this right um, and in that sense. You know, if if we if we broaden the uh, framework in terms of how we understand the current conflict that much, then it might not matter all that much, right? Because you 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 would then have to pick from uh, a lot of different kinds of approaches in in national security terms.
6: Uh,
1: if we have time, otherwise we can go on. Yeah, I mean, I, I I agree. I think it's just it's important to always be clear about the game that your country is playing and and whom you're you're dealing with, and so characterizing this as a Cold War is just important because it takes us into a different frame of of thinking, both in terms, from a diagnostic perspective, like as an analyst, because when we acknowledge that it's a Cold War, I immediately become skeptical that just a bunch of happy talk can get our way out of this. Because I think it's just, it's structurally driven by a conflict of interest that's not gonna go away, that we can't just have student exchanges and things like, I mean, that's just not going to work. And then from a strategic perspective, uh, kind of following up on that previous question, I think we can borrow some of the, the Cold War strategy, at least on the American side, because, you know, back then containment was designed to hold the line against the Soviets until the internal weaknesses of their system eventually sap their power and force them to radically scale back their ambitions. And to me, I'm, I'm convinced by by those that argue you can apply a somewhat similar overarching strategy towards China, because I'm, I'm, as I've written my research, I'm very bearish on China's long-term economic prospects, its demographic prospects. I think it's increasingly strategically encircled. So I can at least hope for a day somewhere down the line where there will be that shift in the balance of power. It can come about peacefully, and then you might get a diplomatic breakthrough. But I think to, to understand that we have to think in Cold War terms, so it helps from both a strategic as well as a diagnostic um, lens.
0: Uh, Mike, I, I'm still trying to reconcile where you and Arnie differ. And it seems to me, as, you're, as the two of you are talking, it seems like, Mike, for you, there's a spectrum of different types of Cold Wars. And on one end is the US, USSR Cold War. And when you're positioning yourself, uh, you're positioning the US-China conflict, uh, US-China, whatever you want to call the situation, it seems like um, you're at least in the middle of the spectrum of the range of Cold Wars, if not closer to the U.S., US USSR type of Cold War, but you're not saying it's exactly the same. Is that a correct? I just think no,
1: no two Cold Wars are ever going to be exactly the same. The world is just different, you know, over the decades and each country is is different. But the fundamentals, I mean, that should not distract us from what is fundamentally driving this conflict, where I do think you see um, similarities across all
4: these Cold Wars.
0: Great. Okay, let's uh, turn to more questions from the in-person audience. Okay, I see one in the back that's a new hand. And then I think I saw two others of who, or I guess uh, one person that's still here (laughs) earlier. So please go ahead.
1: Hi, thanks for your talk. So we've seen a rise of Asian hate crimes and how the US has had a history of discrimination against Japanese Americans and unfairly targeting Chinese scientists by the DOJ. How would you address the concerns by Asian Americans who wear the face of the competitor in this new Cold War environment? Do we all have to work for a certain intelligence agency?
6: Thank you for um, allowing me to ask another question. And in terms of the discussion of the so-called liberalism and and liberal democracy, uh, that's in the framework of what's now called the rules-based order, which is still dedicated to the zero-sum game the world is fixed, either we're on top, a winner, or you're a loser. And it comes out to zero, and it's the liberal world order that has actually carried out two regime changes in the last 20 years. So there is a real fear that countries could have around the world that if they don't submit to the new rules-based order, they're in trouble. Now, recently, uh, Xi Jinping has talked extensively about a common shared interest for mankind, humankind. And recently they have a white paper about a shared future. Whether you agree with President Xi or not, it's a legitimate issue because all people born anywhere on this planet have the same interest. Economic development, development from their family, using their creativity to produce for society for a better future. So there is a way, there is a common interest there, whether you like him or not. And one of the things I propose is why doesn't China and the United States have a common mission while the rivalry is going on, a common mission to eliminate poverty in Africa, 500 million people live in poverty. Why can't we find missions that actually unite what is a legitimate common interest and get out of the zero-sum game? Sir,
0: so your question is how we can get out of the zero-sum game?
6: So
1: on the, um, the Asian hate question. I mean, I have tremendous sympathy for that, so I'm half Japanese. My Japanese family was interned in World War II, and, you know, the the boys were sent off to fight for the 442nd, and um, not all of them came back. So we clearly don't want to go down those kind of routes. I mean, to me, the first step is just emphasizing that our key allies in this are also East Asian and the Taiwanese, the Japanese, etc., and that the Chinese Communist Party does not have a monopoly on what counts as Chinese civilization that just because you're anti-ccp does not as a geopolitical actor doesn't mean that you're anti-chinese i mean this sounds sort of obvious to say it but you know it's important to be reminded of it over and over again and then the last is just i think on at least the u.s side that a key u.s strength is the openness and dynamism of the the system and so i i have a, i agree largely with uh, the sentiment you seem to express which is should the United States be cutting itself off from from immigration because it's so scared of of espionage et cetera i mean i I think because I'm more sanguine on the technological front um, for the U.S., I'm, I'm more willing to err on the side of that. We may let some espionage go through um, if it means we have to have a somewhat more liberal immigration policy and, and student exchanges, etc. I'd, I'd be much more in favor of um, having treading lightly there so that hopefully you can still have the exchange. And I see it in my classroom. I mean, there, I used to have lots of Chinese students and it's been alarming how many Chinese nationals now are not in my in my classes. And I see that as a major detriment. And then to, to the other question, just about the liberal order being scary for a lot of regimes. I totally agree. I mean, that, you know, it is terrifying. Uh, not only do you have the direct, uh, we, the responsibility to protect and we can topple your regime and we can decide if you get sovereignty or not. Um, but, you know, there's also the the peaceful evolution. I mean, the Chinese saw what happened to Gorbachev. They saw what happened to Ceausescu. You know, I mean, it's like this, this order is terrifying if you're an autocrat. Um, and so to me, this just is part of the reason why I think there's an ideological component. I, I share your perspective that maybe the global, the glo- what we're calling the global South or Sub Saharan Africa in particular, might be able to reap some benefits, but I don't think it's going to come through a cooperative endeavor between the United States and China. My best hope is for a sort of space race dynamic where each side is trying to win hearts and minds across developing countries and they get to reap the benefits because they're getting aid. it's like when parents get divorced and they lavish aid on the children try to buy their love. I mean, it's perverse, but maybe it'll lead to some good outcomes and hopefully not the proxy wars and contests we saw in the Cold War.
0: So we are running a bit short on time, so I'm going to load up the poll, the final poll, and so folks can vote uh, while Arnie is yeah. talking. I'm so, I hate to do this, Arnie, but
1: That's please. That's your
2: last chance That gives me an unfair advantage. I would say. Yeah, it doesn't actually, because on this I think we agree fully. Um, I'm very concerned about uh, anti-Asian um, hate crimes and resentments in this country and elsewhere. I've seen it on campus. I think it is really, really problematic. I think not enough is being done with regard to this um, in terms of simple justice um, uh, issues, but also in terms of the image of this country abroad. Right? Because if there was one thing that made the United States stand taller internationally than what it otherwise would have been able to be given its behavior during much of the Cold War, it was that it was a country where people could come and aspire to success whoever they were, right? If we start moving away from that, because we are now competing with people who come from one specific country that happens to have a lot of people who would like to come and study or live in the United States, we are throwing away perhaps one of the most important lessons of how the Cold War was won uh, in in the end. And then finally, on this issue of, of uh, where we are with regard to um, what China wants and what Xi Jinping expresses. I think one of China's biggest weaknesses today comes out when you sit down and you actually look at what Xi has to say for how the world is gonna work. And you find that he says nothing that is new whatsoever, right? A lot of people around the world are asking themselves, well, if China then has risen, what kind of world order is it really looking for? But you can study Xi Jinping's thought in and out, and you would never be able to discover that, right? Now, ideas matter in this respect as well. And I think that is really, really important. And this is why China does not have an advantage. China can say that it wants everything good for for all people, but especially for China. But that's not a strategy, right? That's not a world order. Uh, It's at best something that is said in order to uh, to, 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 to put other people at ease with what China stands for, rather than a program for the future. And this is one of the advantages I think the United States has had Over, John, and I hope that will continue in the future.
0: So, I want to thank both of our um, leading experts a political scientist and historian for engaging. And I, I think we haven't resolved how to how to define Cold War. We still have two different definitions. So I'm not exactly sure how to interpret the debate results, to be honest, because people are going at it with different definitions. But I do see some change. So I think that would meant that we had a productive discussion. So thank you again both very much for coming. And for both of them, they had to travel from out of town. So let's please give them a round of applause. <laughs>